a couple of verses this morning. And this question that is posed to us at the beginning here is uh, it's quite intriguing. In fact, I, I, we're going to stick there for a long time because there's a lot of things going on in that question that I think are worth exploring and worth thinking about. Um, but first, so it was uh, this week I was rereading. I, I've gotten to the point where like, I have this sort of 10 or 12 books that I really enjoy, and I just kind of reread them over and over. Um, I should probably expand myself, but I just, I, I enjoy these things, and so I, um, I was rereading, because uh, I'm a glutton for punishment, uh, 1984 again, just this week, and um, trying, you know, trying to remind myself that it, it could be worse, and it's a, it's a little depressing how parallel that book is to our world, but I was reading it, and I was, um, I was just thinking about all of the things that are going on in this, you know, in this sort of dystopian world that is, you know, fantasy world that's happening. And obviously, or what, you know, he's, he's writing to make comparison and, and sort of um, give his comments on the government and especially communism. But as I was reading it, I was thinking, man, like a lot of the things that are happening with the, the main character, with Winston and his girlfriend and all this, a lot of the things that they talk about um, are actually, can, can really be parallel to the Lord, and especially in what we're going to look at this morning, because they have all of these rules, and, and they're trying, they're, they're willing to break them all the time as long as they don't get caught. That's sort of what's happening in the first half of this novel. They're just like, the government is bad, and the party is bad, and all these things that they're telling us, this is all bad. And so as long as we think that we can get away with it, we're going to we're going to do it. We're going to break all of the rules, um, and and this I think is at the heart of this question that Paul asks us here at the beginning of chapter six: um, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This idea that well, God's going to forgive us, and we're going to be able to get away with this. So shouldn't we just keep doing this? Shouldn't we just keep sinning? Life is easier that way. Like, why wouldn't we just continue in these things? Because we know that God's love and his forgiveness are there. And so there's all kinds of, um, I think, things that we can learn, especially from verse 1. And so uh, we'll start with the encouragement, right? The encouragement is, how many of you have ever thought this question, right? What shall we say? Should we just continue in sin, right? That grace may abound. For, I think, most of us, if not all of us, this thought and this question has entered into our minds and there is an encouragement here because when if you're willing to ask that question if you're willing to think that thought then you understand at least part of the gospel you understand the part of the gospel really really well the good news is that we understand and one of the great because one of the greatest barriers to the gospel is this how can God forgive without me doing something? How many of you were taught by parent or somebody along the way, nothing in this world is free? Right? My dad told me that a million times, maybe probably more than a million times. And so, you know, as I'm growing up and things are, you know, they, ooh, look, dad, there's a free credit card in the mail. This is going to be great. Like, nope, there's a, there's a catch, right? There's always something. Nothing in the world is free and we're taught that and we learn that and we experience that over and over in almost every aspect of life. And then somebody shares the gospel with us and they say, 
the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, it's, it's free at least to you, right? It, it, there was a cost and it was paid by Jesus and not by us. And so we hear that and we think, yeah, but everything else in my life, this doesn't fit in. What do I need to do? Where's the list of rules that I have to follow, all the things that I have to accomplish in order for God to forgive me? And the Bible says nothing, right? Repent of your sins, believe on Jesus, and you will be saved. It's, it's very simple. You don't have to follow a list of rules. You don't have to do a certain thing. You don't have to avoid doing other things in order to be saved. So when we ask this question, it means that we understand the free gift of grace, right? There's many of you who have told me and I've had conversations with who grew up in, in churches and in traditions that didn't believe this, right? That, that believed that there were, there were certain things that you needed to do in order to be saved or at least to maintain your salvation. You see, when if you don't understand the gospel properly, if you think that you have to do something in order to earn God's love, you would never ask that question. You would never say, well, then shouldn't I just keep sinning? Well, of course not. You have to do good deeds if you're going to keep God's love. That's a false gospel. So to ask the question means that at least at some level we understand that the gospel of God and, and the good parts of it. And so it's an encouragement. I didn't mention this last week. It was sort of at the end of chapter 5. But I think it's worth mentioning um, in this discussion. Because see, he says right at the end here, so the, the, the law was not brought in in an attempt to make us holy. right? That, um, whereas I think it's in verse 20. right? The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This is sort of an argument that Paul makes and he's building upon it. And so... What he is telling us is, God didn't give the Ten Commandments, God didn't give the 600 plus laws, so that Israel would finally wake up and be like, oh, now I know, now I have the list, now I'm going to be perfect. That's all I needed. I just needed someone to give me all the things that I'm supposed to do, and then I'll do it. The law came in to increase the trespass. So that we would know how sinful we actually are. If you go back and you read the law, we don't really even have to get beyond the Ten Commandments. But if you read the Ten Commandments and you continue to reading the law, you should get to the end of it and think, I am in a lot of trouble. If this is the standard, if this is the thing that I have to obey and follow, then I'm in trouble. But God says to us, there's another way, right? Back in... Um, in Romans chapter 3, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. It's come through Jesus. And so this idea that we, we don't have to do good works, God didn't give us the law so that we would follow it perfectly. He gave us the law so we would understand how sinful we are. And so this question, when we ask it, once again, there's just this little bit of encouragement that we understand that part of the gospel. But the bad news is, is that asking that question means that we've missed a different part of the gospel. It may show that you understand that works aren't necessary, but it also shows a fundamental lack of what salvation is producing in us. See, what Austin read was very fortuitous, right? Out of James. Many people, the Roman Catholic Church as a whole, throughout most of church history, has taken that verse, those verses, and said, well, then we can't be saved by faith alone. We have to be saved by doing something, by good works. That has to be a part of it. And they misunderstand what James is saying, right? Because James is telling us 
A real faith will produce good works. If there, is no good, if there are no good works in your life, the faith should be looked at. It sh- you should go back and question whether that faith is real. Because we're not to continue in sin just because we have salvation. You see, if you see salvation as your means to do whatever you want, right? Full immunity. You can just run around doing anything that you want. The wrath of God will never land on you because it's already landed on Jesus. I'm just going to do everything that I want. I would strongly suggest that you reevaluate your understanding of what it even means to be a follower of Jesus. Because that is not what the Bible describes as somebody who is loving. I mean, Jesus gives us a very simple statement, right? If you love my father, what does he say? You will obey him. That's, the, that's, that's how he equates love when we interact with the Father, that we would be in obedience to God. That's how we show our love for him. So this question is asked, and some versions, I don't know what, I think the NASB, I don't, I'm not sure how many of them, some of them say, God forbid. Now, that's a bad translation of the Greek, but it's a really good rendition of what the Greek is trying to communicate. By no means. May it never be. This is completely opposite of what God is wanting from us. God forbid that we ever think about this question under these terms. I would assume, once again, that we have all thought about it. And it even sounds like we're trying to do God a favor. It reminds me of my kids when they do certain things. They eat, they eat a cookie, and you, they're not supposed to, and you catch them. Well, I just ate it so that you wouldn't have to, because my kids like to make fun of the fact that, you know, the older I get, the more weight I gain. It just keeps happening. And so they're like, well, I'm just going to eat these sweets so that you don't have to, because I know, Dad, you don't, you don't need those. As if their disobedience is like somehow doing me a favor. And that's even kind of what it sounds like, right, is that... We're trying to find a way, right? Find a loophole. Well, I know you told me not to do this, but when I do it, your love and forgiveness and grace, it's expanding all the more. So isn't this actually a good thing? I mean, how sinful are we that we're willing to, like, twist everything around? Like, it's completely backwards. Or sometimes, maybe it's that we underestimate the craftiness of Satan. You see, in our temptation... Satan will whisper in our ear, right, over and over. That's not that big of a deal. God loves you. He forgives you. It won't, it, I mean, really, what's, what's, what's going to happen? Is God going to revoke your salvation if you give in this time? No, of course he's not. And so he'll tempt you and he'll trick you and he'll try and convince you that just because you know that forgiveness and love and grace are on the other side of our sin, that somehow makes it okay. You see, there's another reality here, and it's far more disturbing. And it's that we find ourselves, when we think about God and we think about sin in this way, we find ourselves in the shoes of the older brother, right? We've heard the story of the prodigal son over and over, and I know I've brought this one up a few different times over the last, however, six, eight months But we read the prodigal son and we think that it's all about the younger son. And really Jesus tells that story 
to the Jews so they understand. The, the story is about the older brother in that story, right? You see, the younger son, he goes off and he, and he squanders his inheritance and he sins and he does everything against his father, but he comes back and he says, Father, I've sinned against you, right? He understands that he has done wrong and he only wanted what the father had and he didn't want a relationship with his father, but he repents and the father forgives him and he's welcomed into the feast. And a lot of the times we think that's the end of the story. That's just the beginning of the story. You see, the older brother is the second part. And he looks at the feast and he looks at the, the, the goat that was killed and he says, that was supposed to be mine. And he's out of the party and he asks a servant, he says, your younger brother has come home. And the older brother, you see, he's guilty of the same sin. He doesn't actually want a relationship with his father. He just wants what's his. He wants what the Father has to give him. And because he's not willing to reconcile, he's left out in the cold. He's not invited in. You see, if all we want is just God's forgiveness, if all we want is his love and his grace, but we don't actually want a relationship with him, if we don't want the Father himself, we've missed it. That's what this question exposes in our hearts, right? Do you actually want a relationship with the Father or do you just want all the benefits that he gives to those who believe? The other sort of depressing or bad news on this is that this idea, you see, (coughs) if you are only resisting sin because you don't want to make God mad, you have missed a huge part of what sin actually is. This makes the assumption, well, sin is actually good, and it would be fun for me, and I would enjoy it, but God told me not to, so I guess I won't. I don't want to make him mad, so I'm going to just, I'm going to begrudgingly look at the temptation in my life. That looks like a lot of fun, and I believe that it's good, and I believe that it's a lot of fun, but God told me not to, so I guess I won't. God called sin bad. He calls it evil. He calls it destructive for our lives. And many times, we don't see sin that way. We see it as the thing that's fun that I wish I could do, but God told me I can't, so I won't. I'm going to fight. And I, I I really wish I could walk into it. And that is a complete misunderstanding of God calling something good and us... I mean, that is the Garden of Eden in our hearts all the time, is it not? What happens in the Garden of Eden? God says, this is not something that is for you. Eve says, looks good to me, so I'm going to take it. I challenge you, don't see your sin that way. Don't see your sin as something that is good. Well, God has called it bad, but I'm going to call it good, and I'm going to believe it's good. And the only reason I don't partake of it is because God said not to. See it as bad. See it as destructive. Understand what it actually, truly is. It will ruin you. It will destroy your relationships. It will destroy the life that God has given you. See it for what it is. Understand it for what it is so that when you resist it, you're not saying, ah, that looks like a lot of fun, but I know I shouldn't. That's bad. That will, that will harm me. That will destroy me because God said that it's bad. And so I'm going to do everything that I can, not only to resist it so that I can please God, but to resist it because it's not going to do anything good for me. We understand, right? Just take just one example. 
Is greed bad only because God said so? Or is your life better when you're not holding on to all of your money as tightly as you can? When you're generous, when you're willing to give, and you're not worried about your financial future all the time, and you're saying, look, it's in the Lord's hands, I'm going to be generous and I'm going to give everything that I can. Anybody who asks, I give to them. I give until I I don't have two coats anymore, right? I give until I only have one. I give every time that I can. Isn't your life better when you do that? It's not just that God said it was good and this is how we should act, but your life is more fulfilling. It's better. It is more joyful when you act that way than when you say, okay, what's the bottom number? What is, I mean, maybe this week I'm only going to give 9.9% because I rounded down, right, in your tithe. What is the least amount that I can give to make God happy so that I can keep the rest for myself? That produces An unhappy, unjoyful, unfulfilled life. So not only does God tell us that certain things are good, but they actually are. When we do them, when we live them out, our lives are better when we follow God's command. These are all things that sort of came up in this question, wondering and asking guys want a million dollar word for the week you see there's another problem with this it's called antinomianism anybody ever heard that one anti-law right this is what the roman catholic church you see when martin luther the reformer right the great reformer who nails the 95 theses to the door he comes and he says look you guys and you're teaching the world that you have to have works to be saved this is not the bible You're saved by faith alone. And the Roman Catholic Church immediately brought this question up without even knowing that they're doing it. If you teach that to the world, everybody is just going to run rampant in their sin. Anti-law, anti-nomianism, that's the word. Everybody is just going to go do whatever they want. If you don't tell people that they absolutely have to do these lists of things, they're never going to do them. They miss the point. This is what Paul is fighting against in these verses. He is saying, just because we preach and teach that it's by faith alone, not by works, doesn't mean that the world is then free to run and do whatever they want and free to sin in whatever the way that they want. Not only are we not free to do it, but the better answer to this question is what Paul then continues on in the rest of these verses. Look at 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, we don't just resist sin because it makes sense. We don't just resist sin because God said to. We resist sin because we are dead to it. We have a new identity in Christ. All of those other things are true. Your life will be better when you follow God's law. But more importantly than all of that is that that is who you were. As a Christian, you are something different. You are something new. The sin that you had in your life, that you are dead to. Living in sin is in direct opposition of the identity that each one of us has in Jesus Christ. All that Paul has explained, these famous verses out of chapter 3, right? Who you were is that beginning of chapter 3. 
No one is righteous. No one is seeking God. No one is doing good. That's who you were when you were living in sin. Before you came to Jesus. That's our identity before Christ. But if we believe in Jesus, if we have asked God to forgive us of our sins, we have a new identity. We used to live in sin, but we have now died to it. And so Paul asks us this question that he asked over and over and over again in chapter 6. How are are we to continue in sin? I'm sorry, in verse 3, how can we who died in sin still live in it? This is a vital question in all of the argument of chapter 6. He asks it over and over again in different forms. In almost every verse, he brings this idea up over and over again. If you have died to sin, how can you still live in it? It reminds me of the story I've heard quite a few times. Now, I'm not, um, I, don't, I don't partake or enjoy rap very much. Maybe you do as a musical um, thing. But I know who Eminem is, right? Eminem, right? It's not a candy, but it's this guy. Because he's like the only white rapper who is, other than Vanilla Ice, who has ever really become popular. He's a cultural phenomenon, right? He's, I don't even know how many records he sold over, you know, he was really popular like when I was in high school and college. Um, and, I mean, millions upon millions of dollars. He had millions of albums. I don't platinum probably. I mean, he's a very, very popular musician. And I've heard this story being told by him multiple times is that, I mean, this is years into his career when he's worth multi-million dollars and he goes and he wants to go buy a Rolex. And he doesn't know if he can afford it. And so he calls his agent and says, hey, this watch is like $8,000. I don't think I can afford this. Can I? Like, is is it okay for me to buy this watch? Because, see, he grew up really, really poor. He forgot who he was, right? He forgot that he was a multimillionaire. He didn't know that he could. And that's what it is for us, right? When we come to Christ, it's like we have millions of dollars and we don't even know if we can go and buy a watch. We forgot who we are. We're living in the past. We're living in who we used to be when we live in our sin. We've forgotten our identity. We revert back to who we were. We ignore what Christ has declared us to be. We are justified. We are children of God. And we are dead to our sin. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be dead to sin? Many have argued, well, then this means it, can, it should be completely shut off to you. When you're dead to the world, that's a phrase we use, or when you're literally dead, people who have died do not respond to stimuli from outside. Right? So the idea being, if I'm supposed to be dead to sin, many have argued, well, then, sin should have no effect on me. There should be no influence from it ever in my life, which is crazy right it's nonsense it's not the experience that we that we have in our life and it's against the bible because paul multiple times just in this chapter alone look at verses 12 look at verse 12 let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness why is paul warning us against the temptation of sin if dead to sin means then it should have no influence on us ever again I don't think that's what he's arguing. 
Not only because if that were true, then all of us would not actually be dead to it, right? Because every single one of us is tempted by it. Every single day, there's sin, there's temptation that comes into our life. There are things that make us want to revert back to what we used to be. So what does it mean? How can you who died to sin still live in it? I think this phrase of living in your sin is probably the answer. You see, because our reality is one of serving God. Fighting sin is who we are as Christians. But before we became Christians, we weren't fighting it, right? It's a new identity. Think about yourself. Think about your life before you accepted Jesus. What does that look like versus now? Living in sin is somebody, it's a mentality of you sinning and not fighting and not caring, and that's what the non-Christian is doing, right? They have no reason. They have no desire. Why would I fight against sin? They don't even believe the Bible. They don't believe in God. Why would they fight against it, right? Living in it is like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. I don't care that your Bible says that it's wrong. This is what I do. This is what defines me as a human being. I'm living in it. I have no remorse. I have no guilt. I, I don't care about the things you're telling me, right? And so when we become a Christian, that sin bothers us. The temptation bothers us. We no longer live in it. We no longer are okay with it. We're not able to see our sin even when we fail and be like, oh yeah, but it's no big deal. The guilt is real. And we give it to God, right? And he forgives us. See, to struggle with sin and to live in sin are two very different things. As all of you know, we have several men who are going through, they've been nominated as elders, they're going through this examination process, right? Make sure that they are meeting the requirements of what the Bible says and laid out in Scripture. But these requirements don't require perfection. If that were true, then we would never have elders, right? These guys would all fail, and nobody would ever come after them who could ever walk in and, and look at those qualifications and be like, well, you, you failed at this, you know, so you're done, that's it. That's not what the Bible is doing. The important thing is that when we're going through these qualifications, asking them questions, are you seeing victory in this? You're struggling with it, but are you winning, right? Is Christ strengthening you? Are you allowing God to strengthen you and fight that sin? And are you coming out on the other side victorious more than you're not? How often are you not, right? It's not, are you perfect, but what does your life look like when you're fighting the temptation? So when Paul tells us that we have died to our sin, we can never go back and live in it. We can never be okay with it ever again. Even if we're tempted, even if we fall, even in moments of weakness, we go back and we do that sin. We're not going to be okay with it. We say, yes, Lord, I failed. Please forgive me and strengthen me for the next time. Our identity as a follower of Christ by definition, says that we cannot be willing to let sin reign in our lives. That's what it used to do. That's who we were. That's not who we are. We have to fight. We can never stop. And so then we have this idea of being baptized into his death. Now, I think this is probably one of the most crucial passages of understanding baptism. This is where we get the language from. Right? Many times when we baptize 
baptized in death, raised to the walk in newness of life. This is where it comes from. These are the ideas, and this is where Paul is explaining to us, that we are united with Christ in baptism in his death. I mean, this is why, this is like one of the main passages of why we believe as a church, as Baptists as a whole, in believer's baptism. Baptism means that we are being baptized into the death of Christ, raised to walk in the newness of life in Him, united with Him through faith in these things. How can this be done to somebody who doesn't have that faith? Baptize a small child. They're not being baptized into the death of Christ. They're not being raised to walk in the newness of life. They're still in their sin. If If a person has not gotten faith, expressed that faith, prayed, prayed the prayer, or not prayed the prayer, but you know what I mean? Like, if they don't have the faith in their life, if they have not been saved, they cannot be baptized, right? Because baptism's purpose is to unite us in the death of Christ that we could walk in the newness of life. If you've ever wondered, right? I mean, you see all these different denominations, you see a lot of churches who baptize babies. There's a reason there's a disconnect between those churches and us. Because this is important, that we would be baptized into the death of Christ. And it also points out this idea of our new identity. That's why we go, I mean, when it's possible, right, we want to baptize somebody in full immersion. It looks as if they're going into the grave, and it looks as if they're coming. The symbolism of going and dying and coming back to the newness of life is very, very important. It's our identity. We die to our old self, and we have this new identity. We are a new creation. And so we share in the death of Christ. See this idea of dying to our sin. This is huge for Paul. We're going to spend multiple weeks revisiting it because he keeps rehashing this idea over and over and over again. So we die to ourself. We are raised in this newness of life. And this is the question. See, I think we all hear this and we understand it. But really, here's where the rubber meets the road. Is this how you view your life? Is this how you understand sin? Do you see yourself as dead to your sin? In other words, do you believe that salvation actually made you new? A different person? Do you believe that all of the previous things that you struggled with, that you actually have the ability (coughs) through the power of the Holy Spirit to defeat those things? You see, before you were a slave to them, there was nothing that you could do. You were going to lose every time. But now you can actually win. You can actually fight. You can actually overcome those sins because God is living in you. He gives you the power to do this. And oftentimes, we just forget about that. Well, I failed again. No big deal. Moving on with my day. No, you could have won. You could have defeated that temptation if you had fought longer and harder. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to make you recognize that you have a power within yourself that you forget about. I forget about it all the time. When, when the things that tempt me on a regular basis come up, I just think, well, here we go. Uh, it's about to get ugly, and it's about to get bad. And I forget that God is living in me, that there is power there to defeat that. And I just say, well, 
In 10 minutes, maybe this will be over and I'll sin and I'll, for, and I'll ask God for forgiveness and this, will just, this is how the cycle of my life goes. It doesn't have to be that way. You have the Holy Spirit. You can win because God strengthens you to the point where you can win. So the question is, do you believe it? Do you live like this is true? Or do you, do you live the same life that you did but just every time you're done sinning, you ask for forgiveness? It doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. That's what Paul is telling to us. How can you possibly live in sin after you have died to it? You have to fight. You have to overcome that. You couldn't do it before, but you can now because God has given you the Holy Spirit. He lives within you. He dwells within you. And so my question to you is, are you fighting? How long are you fighting? For five minutes? Five hours? Or are you willing to fight until the temptation goes away? However long that takes. That's what God is calling us to. We don't fight the temptation so that God will love us more. We don't resist sin so that we will be, have a greater status in heaven. It's nothing about that. Look, you're forgiven and you're loved. And you are in God's kingdom if you have repent and believe in Jesus. That's, that's solid. There's nothing that can take that away. But you show your love for God by obeying him. How long will you fight? Don't forget your new identity is that you are actually a victor. You, you went into the grave with Jesus and you have come back out with newness of life. You are no longer dead. You are alive. You have the power to fight these sins. You have the power to overcome them because the Holy Spirit lives within you. So my challenge to you, my encouragement to you is to fight because that thing we talked about at the beginning, the pragmatic, that when you fight, that when you resist sin, your life will actually be better. It's not just, well, this is really hard and I don't really feel like fighting it so I'm not going to and really there is no consequence for it. There is a consequence for your sin. It's not hell anymore, but your life will get worse. Your relationships will become broken when you don't fight the sin that you're supposed to be fighting. So not only are you showing love to God, but you're showing love to others. You're building, you're strengthening those relationships that are in your life. All of these things should inspire us to greater heights, to, long, to fight longer, and never forget that you can win. That God is with you, that Christ is with you, and that you can overcome those sins in your life. And when you don't, because we all fail, go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. You see, that salvation that God has given you, it will never go away. It can never be taken from you. Because God is the one who sustains it. He's the one who is holding it. So I don't want you to walk away this morning thinking, well, I've been failing over and over again. I guess I'm just not a good Christian. I guess I, maybe I'm not even a Christian. I don't think it was the Bible is saying. I think this is encouraging us. It is challenging us to fight harder, to believe that truth more deeply. See, when you're tempted, what do you do? You say, I don't know if I'm going to win this one. This one, it's rough. I, I won the last three, and so now this time, it's really, really, really weighing on me, and I don't think I'm going to overcome it this time. That's what I do. I don't know if that's what you do or not. That's, that's part of the temptation. That's part of the lie that Satan is whispering in my ear over and over again. And I forget to tell myself that I have a new identity. I forget to tell myself that I have victory in Jesus. And it's victory now. 
It's not just that one day you're going to die and you get to go to heaven and not go to hell. That's, it's victory today in the things that you are struggling with. It's victory in obeying the Lord in this moment. Every day of every moment, we can fight and we can win through the Holy Spirit. I challenge you, don't give up so easily. Fight longer, fight harder. Believe the promise that you are a new creation, that you have been raised with Christ, that you have this new life. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And Lord, I won't speak for everybody, but I'll speak for myself in that I'm ashamed at how quickly I quit, how quickly I give up the fight against the sin in my life. Lord, please, please forgive me. Lord, help me to have a deeper faith and to believe more fully and more strongly in this promise. You have raised us to walk in newness of life, not in our old life, but in something different, something new and powerful. Lord, help us. We are tempted every moment of every day to, walk, to go back to what we were, to walk in our old life of weakness. Lord, we forget the power of God. We forget your power in us through the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to remember that you are standing with us and that through your power and through your love and through your work in our lives, we can fight back and we can win these victories over sin. Lord, please forgive us when we don't fight hard enough and we don't fight long enough and help it inspire us on the next go around that we would, that we would remind ourselves of what is true. We would silence the lies and the temptation of Satan and his demons that are constantly after us to try and convince us that we can't win. There's no way we'll ever resist. We failed a million times, so we're going to fail this time. Lord, it's just not true. Help us to fight. Help us to win. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.